So we've paused our Ephesians series as we've been work, working through for months that awesome letter from Paul to the Ephesian church. We'll pick that back up at one more chapter to go. We'll do that in the beginning of the new year, Lord willing. But to pause to focus on the advents of Christ these last three weeks, this being the third. The advents, the arrival, that's what it means in, in the Latin, the arrivals of Jesus. Well, for millennia, the church has celebrated two advents. The first was his arrival into the teenage virgin's womb and then his subsequent birth. That's the incarnation. And then we have hope for his second arrival that has yet to come. Well, coming on the clouds, that's what we focused on last week. It shapes, that shapes our our missiology, our mission, how we have been sent, and therefore our ecclesiology, how we gather. Just big theological words for what our purpose is and why we would do it together. Who is Jesus and what has he done? It's so vital that we see that. This morning, his third advent, chronologically his second, I guess you would say, that maybe middle advent, I'll title it, the way of Jesus. Jesus arrived on the scene around the age of 30 in the Judean countryside, baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. And at that moment, it kind of inaugurated three years that would change all of history. Three years of life and ministry with a group of ragtag individuals that grew and swelled to thousands that came back down to maybe a few hundred, all the way down to 11, who then ultimately all scattered at his crucifixion. So this is the story of the way of Jesus that is just as vital, has just as equally powerful implications as those other two advents in our lives. Jesus is and was far more than an ideology, a philosophy, or a theology. He is the way of life. Matthew 3, verse 3, the fulfillment of the prophecy, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He's speaking of John the Baptist. Isaiah said this, A voice of one calling in the wilderness will call out, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Jesus has a way about him. It's his life. It's his teaching. It's his character. The way of the Lord was coming. Jesus later would make the bold claim in John 14.6 and say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And by saying through me, it is not only through his death and subsequent resurrection unto salvation. That, that is true. But when Jesus speaks of life, it's all-encompassing. And so coming to life and coming to uh, truth comes through his way of living. It's, it's all-inclusive. When Jesus said, with some of his first words that we have recorded in the Bible, he said to those few fishermen at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he said, come, follow me. That was his first call. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, there must have been something deeply missing in, the, in their lives, right? You, can't you just imagine a longing, a hunger, a thirst for something more for those fishermen to drop their nets almost immediately to kiss their wives and their kids if they had them to leave that the business as meager as it may have been but to leave their business and to go follow this perfect stranger essentially there must have been this deep longing in there there must be something more in life and for for now i'm going to go follow this 
this Jesus of Nazareth, because when I am with him and when I listen to him and when I observe him, it makes me feel something I've never felt before. I feel alive. I feel like there's meaning and there's purpose. Something's happening. Can any of you relate to that sense? I'm going to back it up to the sense of how often do you live with that underlying, is this it? Is there not more? Is there a reason? Is there a meaning for all that, all that I'm about? How did I get to this place in life? Is there a longing and a hunger and a thirst for greater purpose and meaning? And Jesus answers that purpose, that longing, that thirst, that hunger. And even just in this first part of his call, if we stop stop it before he gets to, I'll make you fishers of men. Obviously, he was contextualizing to their personal life. If we receive that call, come, follow me, and I will make you. He'll take you where you are in all of its good and bad and not leave you there, and he will transform you. He will make you who you were meant to be. He will give you the purpose and the meaning that you have been longing for. Come follow me. Following Jesus requires, if not demands, that we would give all of our lives. It's not a hobby that we dabble in. It's not a class that we take. It's not a degree that we earn. It's not some insurance policy that we take out for a future day. If Jesus doesn't touch and transform every area of our life and every day of our life, then we would rightly question whether we are even following Him at all. If our faith, or for some of us, our religion is compartmentalized to these 90 minutes on a Sunday, we are not following Jesus at all. That's not the way of Jesus. He must touch every moment and every day. That's what he demanded of his followers. And if we're not following him, it's either because we are ignorant of his teachings, his commissioning, his commandments, or we do not believe them. We either have not heard them, or we've heard them and said, I do not believe them. Because our behavior is determined by what we believe. When you come to believe something, it changes how you behave. It reorders, it reprioritizes your life. Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What you value, what you value most, that's where your passion is, that's, heart was all-inclusive all there, it's not just that beating organ inside of you, it's, it's the center of your emotions, your will, if you, if you treasure something, you're, you're all in with that thing. That's just natural. Where your gaze is set, so you will go. Right? Have, you, have you ever been running on a treadmill? And you, you turn your gaze, or you, maybe you, you turn completely, that's dangerous, grab onto the handrail quickly. Well, I have a, a picture of running on a treadmill and having like a TV that's just off-center, and you're watching that TV, it is very difficult to keep going straight. And you might be just a couple degrees off with your gaze. Your body tends to go where your gaze is. Even, even though your, th- your thought pattern is, continue down this straight path. When your gaze shifts, so you go. To maybe tragic or embarrassing results, depending on if you've had that experience. 
You know, perhaps it would be most helpful considering our current culture today to completely end the usage of the term Christian. Does that sound blasphemous? I don't know if you use that term, maybe you don't. Uh, let others use it for you if they will. That's, that's the first derogatory slur toward the followers of Jesus. These are Christians. They are little Christs. They represent him or represent him so much that they look just like him. They live just like him. And how dare we actually claim that term to say that we are just like him. In all of my life, in all of my ways, I live like Jesus. I am a Christian. Is that what you mean? Is that what is meant when it is said of you? Maybe we abandon it altogether. That's not what they first described themselves as. In fact, before they were, even the believers in Jesus were even called Christians, they were called followers of the way. The way being Jesus and a way of life. If we would say anything, that's how we rightly would say it. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, I'm not getting to all that well, but I am following him. That we might rightly claim. That's the focus of our gaze. And he said, come and follow me and I will make you. He meant in every way. This is why the life of Jesus is so vital. Without the life of Jesus, God remains this massive concept, idea. At least for the Israelites in the Old Testament, they had us. They had the pillar of fire and cloud that maybe brought it to a little bit of tangible sense that he was with them. But if you, if you then said, our goal is to be God-like, to be like God, man, imagine the disconnect. How, how do you become like an all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, unchanging spirit? And so it becomes wholly other. That gap and that distance between, between you and that holy God is massive. Jesus brings that into reality for us. Jesus doesn't just show us what God is like. He shows us that God is in fact Jesus-like. Jesus was His purpose of revelation from before the foundations of the world. We, people, were created in the image of God. This is what it looks like to bear His image. Jesus becomes the perfect model for us that we now can relate to. We can understand, we can grasp what He is like. Imagine this, God is God after all, so He could redeem His people, if that's has been His mission from the beginning, to create a perfect world in community with Himself that is then subsequently broken because His creation doubts Him, dismisses Him, rejects Him, believes the lie of the enemy, and they are separated from fellowship. And so from then on, He's been redeeming that covenant and pursuing His lost creation. He can do that however He wants. He could simply have sent His Son, He could even have incarnated but without a history into a different place at a different time. Imagine what that would have been like to have Jesus come riding in on the white horse, not the donkey, with no known history. Who is this man? A mystery surrounding Him. Gone to the cross in redemption. Subsequently raised from the dead in in glory and in victory unto our salvation for all who believe. 
This is a slight shift of the story. And yet, what are we left with if then the answer is to our life and purpose and mission, be like that? How? how? Be like what? Unknown? Mysterious? How do I follow that example? And we're left with, again, a disconnect. The life of Jesus, that middle incarnation into the Judean countryside, to dwell amongst the people, to live and minister for three years is so vital for us and we can overlook it far too, too often and too easily. If we're left to follow a doctrine, not a person, a concept, not a hero, it may change our philosophy, it may, may change our thinking, which may turn into some behavioral change, but unless it captivates our heart, the whole of ourselves, it won't transform us. A hero calls us to action. A hero calls us to a heart-level passion of following. It reorders all things and all priorities. Jesus is the greatest and yet most unlikely hero of all time. Does he captivate? Does he call us? And we, We must not take for granted or overlook or dismiss or diminish his life and his ministry while here on earth. It is vital for us. We've done it forever. For millennia, the Apostles' Creed, as true as it is, one of those first kind of creedal statements and declarations by the early church. Here's a part of it. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's the middle portion. It goes on. Some preceded it, but that's the portion on Jesus. What happened? We... We skipped over 33 years with a comma right there. He was born of the Virgin Mary, comma, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. What happened in the 33 years in between? As if they'd meant nothing? And yet they mean almost everything. How he lived is so vital for us. We don't know much from the first 30 years. We know a whole lot from the last three, thanks to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who have recorded it from us from three different vantage, or four different vantage points, we can put together so much of the story of those three years. We can't ignore the first 30, at least conceptually. We don't know the specifics, but we can draw many conclusions and understandings rightly about those first 30 in the life of Jesus. Namely, that he was born just as everyone else is. He grew up as a Jewish boy in a Jewish family, learning a trade from his father, He had many other brothers and sisters. He was the oldest. So imagine a household that's just as chaotic as you can imagine with five, six children growing up together. It's possible, if not likely, that Joseph died at an early age, somewhere after the age of 12. That's the last time Joseph is really seen and known. And for, for as faithful as he was, certainly he could have drifted away. But, but a more likely conclusion is that he died when those kids were still young and that Mary was left to raise them with a community around her, certainly, but raise them as a single mom. And if that's true, then Jesus grew up with also with loss and pain and uncertainty, with God his Father, clearly, but without an earthly father. Anyway, you look at it, I think his earthly father is gone and absent in his life from a relatively young age. 
thinking about Jesus going through puberty is an interesting thought. I would like to know how he did that without sinning. So we don't know much about those first 30 years except that he did experience life growing and learning. Being a, a Jewish boy, you would go to Hebrew school. You would study and memorize the Torah. The first, the first five books of the Bible, you would, that was basically your text and your all-day curriculum to learn and to memorize, to be able to quote and recite from the Hebrew text the first five books of the Bible. If you want that exercise, open up those Bibles, squeeze Genesis through Deuteronomy, Consider how small those words are, and we'll have a little more appreciation for 12-year-old Hebrew boys. So he learned, he grew, he studied, he lived his life, he became like a carpenter. He He faced pain and loss, and certainly even temptation along the way. How hopeful is that? Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Every respect. Whatever you're wrestling with and fighting and temptation, to, no, temptation at its core is ultimately distrusting God's promises and turning to your own way. That's just the, the root of it. And we wrestle with that every day, don't we? It takes any number of forms. Jesus faced all of that temptation to distrust God his Father, to not follow his will for his life, and he was yet without sin. He was unique to say the least. He was sinless, yet his family did not know that he was God. Even as he began his public ministry, his family many times tried to pull him back. They doubted who he was and what his claims were. So he grew up in a way that was not lording it over his family and his divinity, but in a time and a season for 30 years of preparation, of living amongst them. Now they must have known he was a little bit unique compared to anyone else they had met, but none of them worshipped him as God. It would only be later that even his brothers and his mother would come to worship him as God and be willing to give their life for that truth. Imagine that. Imagine what would have had to have changed in their perspective. We see them as late as John 7, toward the end of Jesus' ministry. His brother's saying, come on, come back. We've got to rein this in. You're putting a bad name on the family. Are you crazy? And they couldn't quite grapple with the craziness because they knew Jesus. Like, what's gone? But something, maybe something has changed. To go from that place of doubt to a place of believing that your older brother or your son is God himself, has died for your sins, that's a fantastic, in the sense of un, almost unbelievable testimony to the truth of Jesus. So here's who he is, and he's grown up and he's lived in this way for 30 years, kind of in a time of preparation. And then he comes on, here's his arrival, here's the the advent that we've been talking about, this middle advent, the arrival, Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's that middle arrival. And the Holy Spirit confirmed it. This isn't to say that he didn't have the Holy Spirit with him, but in this coming of the Spirit, 
There's a new empowering, a new anointing for the ministry now that Jesus would go on. His life took a shift from being a carpenter, studying the Word, being a family man, maybe even the head of, a, of that household. It shifted now to a whole new ministry. The Holy Spirit came and empowered him for this season. Just as the Holy Spirit comes to all who believe now in Jesus and fills them, but the Holy Spirit continues to come in empowerment at different times in different ways. Anointing. You may say it in different ways. And what did Jesus do from and with that empowering? What were his ways? What were his rhythms? What did his life look like? Now that's, that's our whole life, isn't it? As a follower of Jesus, is to try to answer those questions. If we're to be like him and to follow him, what does it look like? What does that mean? How do I apply that in my life? That's the whole life of a disciple of Jesus. And that's what those first disciples were trying to figure out. Come follow me. Be with me. Listen to me. Follow my example. And then he sent them out in the same way that he had been sent. And that's how he commissions us. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Well, that takes a lifetime. And since we don't have a lifetime this morning, let me just capture a couple of general highlights of the ways of Jesus. If we are going to be followers of the way. Jesus preached. This isn't necessarily in a particular order, by the way. Jesus preached. He proclaimed who God was, what He has done, and what He has promised. He called people to turn and to repent unto God. To turn back to Him or to turn to Him for the first time. He brought healing to the broken. He brought hope to the hurting. Circle this one. He wasn't in a hurry. He moved through life at a pace that would be infuriatingly slow for those that are trying to follow a radical leader. If you knew this man had come to change the world, get on with it already. Just when things seemed to heighten and thousands had assembled and then been fed in a miraculous way that the buzz just must have been Beyond anything they'd ever experienced, Jesus withdraws from that place. First, he teaches a hard teaching. Many walk away, they're confused, and he withdraws to pray. Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, prayed a lot. Early in the morning, he would withdraw, as was his custom. He would go out by himself. They would wonder, where is Jesus? He's praying. Okay. What time did he get up this morning? Isn't he exhausted? He's praying. Jesus walked a lot. Raise your hand if you got your Fitbit on. Raise it and shake it. Let's go. Get a couple steps at least. Let's get up. Jesus walked a whole lot. Now one, he had to. But I think even today he would have. He would have moved at that pace with people. He paused for many meals Many meals with all kinds of peoples from the religious elite, but more often than not, the marginalized, the weak, the outcast, the hurting. He ate and drank, I think, good wine. There's evidence for that. He ate and drank with people so often that he was accused of those religious elite as being a glutton and a drunkard. How is this a holy man, a zealot, a rabbi? Look at him. He is constantly eating with people and feasting and drinking. 
That's the way of Jesus. Amen. But he was with the sick and the poor and the marginalized, the overlooked, like children, all the time. He incarnated into those places. He listened. He spoke. He spoke often in stories. He told stories. He listened where the hurt and pain was and spoke into it. He served. He gave. He poured out His life. He took the form of a servant. He even washed the feet of His disciples. What a picture of really His whole life. And this is just a snapshot, a cursory overview. But in these ways and rhythms, He changed the world. No greater force or movement has ever been known in the history of our world that even today, hundreds of millions, if not billions, living today would say, I am following this man. And I want it to change everything in my life. Is it any wonder, and we would rightly ask, how, how little do our lives reflect those ways of Jesus today? And is it any wonder if we then expand that to our broader culture? I would hope that, I would guess that most in this room would say, yes, I want to be or I am a follower of Jesus. And then rightly be convicted when we look at our lives and see how it matches up, even with that cursory overview of the ways and rhythms of Jesus. Now broaden that to our broader our culture that might be okay with the idea of Jesus and the concept of this holy man or this rabbi or this pacifist, but it is no way reordering their life to follow his ways. Some that want to have nothing to do with him and certainly less to do with the church. That would take me on a tangent. Don't do that. But is it any wonder that our current culture is increasingly broken, aimless, anxious, grasping for purpose, meaning, identity, isolated, lonely. And yet, our culture has more things and more freedoms than probably any culture in the history of the world, and less and less meaning and community. How out of balance is that? And I think it infects his church significantly. So why is this important? Because if we are called to be imitators of Jesus, followers of Jesus, even imitators of God, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. How do you do that? Look to Jesus, who is God. Then we must become Jesus-like to be his followers. Alan Hirsch says, whatever we might know of God is qualified by how he has revealed himself in the historical and risen Jesus. If God's people fail to resemble, to act, and to sound like Jesus, something must be deeply wrong. To look to Jesus, we must know who he is and how he lived. Jesus modeled... why, Why did I take that time to unpack what we can know conceptually, at least generally through his first 30 years into then more specifically his three years. Why is that important? Because Jesus shows us that there are times and seasons 
of preparation, of faithfulness, of equipping, of relative quietness. And there are seasons and times of outspoken public ministry, service, empowering, faith-filled, risk-living, lay-it-all-on-the-line living. There's both and, and they are both holy. Which season are you in? I pray it's one of the other. You know significantly that you're in a season of preparation, of equipping, of learning, of growing. Now if you're in that season and God is now calling you and moving you based on an observation of opportunities that are coming to step out boldly, may it be. May you follow the Holy Spirit and His timing on that. May we pray significantly on that. Lord, is now the time. There seems to be a rising and growing awakening in our midst to that reality, which would make sense that He would awaken many at the same time to that season of urgency. May we watch and lean into the Holy Spirit who inaugurated it for Jesus. I don't know that Jesus would have circled 30 as the age. Now in that culture, I mean, almost you didn't become a man in some ways until that age. And so likely there was a sense of still being a young man going out, but waiting until the time was getting close to being right, but trusting the Spirit for that timing. May we do the same. If Jesus is the way, He has also shown us the way. The life fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so vital for us to understand how He lived and ministered, especially during those three years of, of ministry. How do we answer this question? How do we answer these questions? How did he preach the way he preached? Heal the sick like that, resist the devil, drive out demons, and all of the rest. How did he do that? If the answer to that is, well, he was God, then we rob him of his humanity and we completely disconnect ourselves from any of the scriptures that say, be like him, because we have no hope of being like God. If instead the answer is the Holy Spirit empowered him, Jesus to live as a man showed us what it looked like to live in the empowering of the Holy Spirit's anointing for everything. That's why he was tired and weary and agitated at times and frustrated. That's why he shows his emotion. I think Mark, the Gospel, shows us the most of his emotion because he was living in the midst of flesh, not sinful. His father was his... His his heavenly Father was His Father, but living in that flesh. If that's the answer, then it clarifies everything of how we've been commissioned to live and we have hope that it can be done in the same Spirit who empowered Him. How else could Jesus say, some of you that are wrestling with, I don't know about that. And by the way, There's a whole lot of description that happens in the Gospels, not just prescription. When Jesus walked on the water, we're not told, get out there and walk on the water. Now generally, here's what Jesus says. And how can He say this if He is not giving the same Spirit for empowerment? He says in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these He will do because I am going to the Father going to the Father and sending the Spirit, the later text in John. How could he possibly say that 
if the way he did everything was because he was God. It must come through God, the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. It's not an ideology or a matter of thinking, but believing that results in our transformed living. T.S. Eliot, famous poet, said this, The greatest proof of Christianity for others is not how far a man can logically analyze his reasons for believing, but how far in practice he will stake his life on his belief. When Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, I'm guessing this is a fairly familiar passage for many. It's right toward the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Pretty famous text. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I've come to see this as Jesus not at all speaking of eternal life. Now, when Jesus speaks of life, it really really is encompassing. So it's not not that there's an eternal life perspective here. We are eternal beings. He's created us with eternal souls. But I think here he is absolutely speaking of living right now on earth. Because otherwise it contradicts the gospel. If the way is hard that leads to eternal life, it's narrow. So get your act together. By your living, by your obedience, by your discipline, at the end you can hope to squeak through that gate and make it. That is the opposite of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace, the truth is, nobody can make it. Jesus has done it. So then Jesus has to be speaking of the now life. Hey, the way is hard. The way of life is hard to follow me. It's Hard and it's because it's narrow. The wide expanse of options the world gives you are there for you. My way is narrow. Count the cost. Is, I believe what he is saying in Matthew 7. In Matthew 9, I think he's saying something very similar to a scribe that comes to him. Matthew 9, 19. A scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You ever prayed, prayed or said something like that? Without even knowing what the heck you meant? Just, I'm in. I'll follow you. I mean, we're in good company. Peter said it pretty late, late on and still fell short and needed to be redeemed. What does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say, oh, awesome, I've been looking for another faithful follower. Let's go. He looks right at him and says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's a great way to rally a, a following, isn't it? To build some momentum. But what is he saying? He's not, he's not rebuking him. He's saying you haven't counted the cost. Or maybe he has, and if he has, he's making sure everyone else who's there understands that the way of following him is narrow. Hey, to, to, to say yes to me now, understand what you're saying no to. You're saying no to a whole lot that this world offers to you. Potentially. Safety, securities, comforts. We have some sleepless nights coming up. We're going to be sleeping out in the open. It's going to be hard. This isn't an easy journey. It's not a lot of fanfare that's going to come to this. In fact, to follow me, it's probably going to cost you your life at some point. Count the cost. The way is narrow that leads to life. The life that follows me. Not a saving life. 
Saving life happens as we believe. Believe in me, receive my words, and you will be saved. But to live the life that Jesus calls us to is a narrow way. Count it. Understand what you're being asked to give up, but also understand that you will be saying yes to the most purpose-filled, radical, awake, adventurous, world-changing life you could ever imagine. The gate is narrow, the way is hard, but it leads to the life we've been created for. Let me get intensely practical for the next 10 minutes. You said we got four songs? 10 minutes. And in saying this and in doing this application portion, this is as much of my 2020 vision as I can get my hands and eyes and heart around right now. Got to do it, right? It's 2020. We got to do it. But it's felt so right to preach mission in Christmas time. A lot of times, the culturally appropriate time would be, let's get through the season, let's get into the new year, and we're all thinking about, what am I going to accomplish this year? Let's get a jump start on that. One, because if we don't connect mission and purpose to Jesus coming at Christmas, we've missed the whole point. It should influence all things. So here's our 2020, or at least mine, I'm inviting you to it, to share in, in this 2020 vision. Now understand, this fits into the big mission vision that we have as a church to help all peoples find new life in Jesus and grow to bear fruit for Him. That's the way we would say our mission in response to our commissioning, in response to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's just the language we attach to it with kind of greenhouse growing life language. That mission is unchanging. You can say it a different way, but every church should have that kind of a mission. New life in Jesus, growing up in every way to bear fruit for him in honor, in glory, in worship to bless others. Now vision is, God, what would you do? What would you want to do in our midst in this time, in this season? So that becomes like a greenhouse. We want to be a greenhouse We want everyone who comes into this place to grow, to grow deep roots in you, to have new life, new shoots, and bear fruit. That's the picture. That's the vision that we would be a place like that to help all peoples. If you don't want to continue to grow in every way into Christ, to be more and more like Him, I hope that this church is an irritating place to be. We must grow up in every way into Christ. Make us like a greenhouse. Lord. That's vision. That's a picture. We, it's something we can be almost tangible about. We're praying for the hundredfold harvest. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to sow seeds. We want to proclaim hope. But you're the one that makes anything grow. You're the one that brings any new life. That's not us. But we are praying multiply. You're the God that takes those seeds and makes them 30, 60, 100-fold. Do that. You've done it before. Do it again. That's vision. So when I bring a 2020 vision, understand that 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 vision, that big vision, that's like a 100-year vision. Multiply, grow, expand beyond what we can even imagine or even track or even count. That's not so tangible, is it? It's like, okay, good prayer. Stirs me up and that's good and I should be praying into the generations, but what's, what's tangible? Let me expand this tangibly for us for 2020. And in, in saying this, I hope it is Relatively simple. Not easy. Right? There's a difference between easy and simple. Simple, understand it. So you're, you're going to want to write this down. I know everyone's already grabbed their papers and their notes and, or their devices. Like, this is going to be good. Building it up here. Here's a threefold. Threefold 2020 vision. Read, pray, eat. You got that? 
I don't underestimate your ability to forget. I don't. (laughs) Read, pray, eat. How's that for vision? Should I expand just a little bit? I said 10 minutes, and now I've got five. We're going to read the Gospels in 2020. I hope you're already reading through God's Word. My guess is some of you aren't at all. We need to be in God's Word. And we're going to make the Gospels our primary text for 2020. If you're already reading, you've got your plans, you're going to read through the Bible this year, awesome. I hope this could fit in somewhere. I'm not going to put religion on it. Read, read Matthew in January. That can be done in one sitting. That's a long sitting. It can be done by reading a chapter a day. There's 28 chapters. You'll get there. Read it a few times if your rhythm of reading is like, oh, you know, I like to read for 10, 15 minutes. You're going to read a few chapters in that, in that time frame. That means you'd read through Matthew three times maybe in the month. But before you read each day, just ask, Jesus, speak. Would you speak to me today through your word? Show me, Jesus. And then give me the faith to believe and the strength to follow what you're showing me in him, to be like him. And maybe if a community starts to read the same thing in the course of a month, it might inspire some conversations. What are you seeing in Jesus? What are you hearing from the Word? And if we're reading some of the same thing, we might be able to engage in a deeper conversation. Let's make the Gospels our primary text. Hashtag win the day. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I was encouraged by some friends of mine who are doing this, whether you use hashtags or not. Just win the day. Get up early. Whenever you're supposed to get up, just get up early. Whether that's 10 minutes, 20, I don't know. Get up early. It's still dang dark, but get up. Put the phone in the other room. You weren't going to be up anyway, so don't look at it. Give those 10 minutes or 20 minutes to the Lord. Put it away. Open your Bible. Pray, Lord, speak. Read about Jesus. And then go on your day. Man, if we did that as a community, we'd be so much further ahead in the ways of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He knew the Word. He studied the Word deeply, and it was the center of his rhythms. So we read, we pray. It's another of our core convictions. Everything by prayer. And so I want to pray more. I want to, uh, we should be praying the same kinds of prayers that we pray for ourselves. Lord, speak. Give me faith to believe and strength to follow. We pray on a corporate level. Give us your word, your presence, the faith to believe and the strength to follow. I want it to be the first thing we do, the last thing that we do, and the central thing that we do. Some of your prayer warriors continue. Others of us need to join the battle. Sunday mornings, 9.30, we pray. That takes sacrifice, it takes rearranging, it takes movement. I'm not asking you to be there every Sunday, but would you join us in 2020 at 9.30 if you are able? We're going to move from the upper room to the fellowship hall. We know some can't get up those stairs, or it's just a bigger space for us. It's a change of context. We are going to pray missional prayers. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Essentially what we already pray, but we're going to be even more intensely focused on that. That's the first thing we're going to do. This is a corporate expression. The la- I want it to be the last thing we do. So starting today even, for anyone that wants, after the service, in the sense of after the postlude, anyone that wants to pray, we're going to gather right here and pray for our church, for one another, for our mission. That might be two minutes, it might be longer, I don't know. It might be small, it might grow, let the Lord move. There's a few of you that I've already invited to join me in that. We're just going to gather right here and pray after the post loop. It's the last thing we're going to do as we assemble. And it's going to be the central thing that we do. The center of the week, the center of the day. Anyone do the math? When is the center of our week, think of work week, and the center of the day? Wednesday noon. 
Wednesday noon is prayer hour. I'm convicted to do this. Join me if you're convicted. I will be here as much as possible. I'm going to be fasting that hour. That doesn't mean I'm fasting all day. Just for that hour, I'm giving away lunch to pray. And anyone that can make it here, awesome. But don't rearrange too much. Where are you going to be? Where's your field? Where's your place? Are you at Microsoft? Pray there. Are you, is, are you at school? You may not be able to pray for an hour. Pray five minutes. That we would all pray centrally. Kingdom come type prayers. Lord, send me kind of prayers. Praying for the lost, the hurting, the broken. I will try to send out encouragements and reminders of how this could look. Center thing that we do. Let's be prayers. And I ran out of time, so I can't give you the last one. You're going to give me one minute? Okay. Eat more. By the way, that's that prayer, that central prayer, I'm targeting January 15th because the next couple, I have a few things that I can't be here for. So January 15th. But that doesn't mean I won't be praying that Wednesday at noon. Center of the week, center of the day. Eat more. You're like, well, I need to be on a diet. I don't need to eat more. Well, I'm giving you a fasting challenge once a week. So that means you can add a meal somewhere else. Actually, I'm just adding... Add a meal with people once a week. Some of you already do that. It's like, well, I already do that. But be intentional, whether it's inviting to your house or you getting invited to theirs. Be creative. Eat with people and listen and share stories. Break bread together, breaks down walls together. And then once a month, add a meal with people not quite like you. We've been doing that now for the last year. That's what Jesus did. I hope these are so simple and they won't be easy to apply. There will be a battle waging for these to happen in our lives. But to read, pray, and eat, let's follow the ways of Jesus and his rhythms. Let's be intensely practical in 2020. Let's be intensely Jesus-centered. Let's follow him every day and in every way. And maybe renewal and awakening will come. Invite the team to come. Do we have a piano? We're going to find out. Come test it. I'll, I'll pray and you can start playing and we'll see if that, by then we have some amplification. Would you join me in, in prayer? We thank you, Jesus, for your middle advent that you have come and then that you arrived and you lived a life and a ministry that is a model for us to know the way to true life. We thank you for your saving life, your death and resurrection. It's our hope. And you are coming again. It inspires our urgency. Lord, we thank you for your living life that shows us where meaning and purpose and community and hope happens. And so I pray, Lord, that we would enter into your ways and your rhythms. And by saying yes to that, we know we're saying no to other things, even good things. Help us to live sacrificial lives. To follow you with all that we are. Touch and transform every area of our lives, we pray, in 2020. And send us, as you were sent, into a world that is hurting, lost, and broken. That we would be agents of healing, hope, and life. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.